0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Around the World in Seventy-Two Days by Nellie Bly CHAPTER Seven, Two Beautiful Black Eyes It was in the afternoon when the Victoria anchored at Port Said, We were all on deck, eagerly watching for the first sight of land, and though that sight showed us a wide, sandy beach and some uninteresting two-storied white houses with arcade fronts, still it did not lessen our desire to go ashore. I suppose that would have been the result under the circumstances had Port Said been the most desolate place on earth. I know everybody was experiencing a slight weariness, though we should all have stoutly denied such reflection on our constant companions— and gladly welcome the change of a few hours on shore, where at least we might see new faces. A more urgent reason still for our going to land was the fact that this was a coaling port for the Victoria, and I never knew of anything that would make one more quickly feel that there are things in life much worse than death, if I may use the expression, than to have to stay on board a ship during the coaling operation." Before the boat anchored, the men armed themselves with canes, to keep off the beggars, they said, and the women carried parasols for the same purpose. I had neither stick nor umbrella with me, and refused all offers to accept one for this occasion, having an idea, probably a wrong one, that a stick beats more ugliness into a person than it ever beats out. Hardly had the anchor dropped than the ship was surrounded with a fleet of small boats, steered by half-clad Arabs, fighting grabbing pulling yelling in their mad haste to be first i never in my life saw such an exhibition of hungry greed for the few pence they expected to earn by taking passengers ashore some boatmen actually pulled others out of their boats into the water in their frantic endeavors to steal each other's places when the ladder was lowered numbers of them caught it and clung to it as if it meant life or death to them and here they clung until the captain was compelled to order some sailors to beat the Arabs off, which they did with long poles, before the passengers dared venture forth. This dreadful exhibition made me feel that probably there was some justification in arming oneself with a club. Our party were the first to go down the ladder to the boats. It had been our desire and intention to go ashore together, but when we stepped into the first boat, some were caught by rival boatmen, and literally dragged across to other boats. The men in the party used their sticks quite vigorously, all to no avail, and although I thought the conduct of the Arabs justified this harsh course of treatment, still I felt sorry to see it administered so freely and lavishly to those black, half-cloud wretches, and marveled at their stubborn persistence even while cringing under the blows. Having our party divided, there was nothing to do under the circumstances but to land— and reunite on shore so we ordered the arabs to pull away midway between the victoria and the shore the boatmen stopped and demanded their money in very plain and forcible english we were completely at their mercy as they would not land us either way until we paid what they asked one of the arabs told me that they had many years experience in dealing with the english and their sticks and had learned by bitter lessons that if they landed an englishman before he paid they would receive a stinging blow for their labor. Walking up the beach, sinking ankle-deep in the sand at every step, we came to the main street. Almost instantly we were surrounded by Arab boys who besought us to take a ride on the burros that stood patiently beside them. There were burros of all colors, sizes, and shapes, and the boys would cry out most beseechingly, "'Here's Gladstone! Take a ride! See Gladstone with two beautiful black eyes!' this they would cry in such soft, plaintive way that one felt that the two beautiful black eyes made the animals irresistible. If one happened to be of a different political belief, and objected to writing the Gladstone hobby, as it were, a choice could be made of almost any other well-known, if not popular, name. There were Mrs. Maybrick's, Mary Anderson's, Lily Langtree's, and all the prominent men of the time. I knew all about burros, having lived for some time in Mexico, but they proved to be quite a novelty to many of the passengers, almost all of whom were anxious to take a ride before returning to the boat. So, as many as could find animals to ride, mounted and went flying through that quaint, sleeping town, yelling with laughter, bouncing like rubber balls on their saddles, while half-naked Arab boys goaded the burros on by short, urgent hisses, and by prodding them from behind with a sharp stick. After seeing about fifty of our passengers started off in this happy manner, a small number of us went to a gambling-house, and in a short time were deep in the sport of placing our English gold on colors and numbers, and waiting anxiously for the wheel to go round to see the money at last swept in by the man at the table. I do not think that any one of us knew anything about the game, but we recklessly put our money on the table, and laughed to see it taken in by the man who gave the turn to the wheel." There was another attraction in this place which helped to win a number of young men from that very expensive table it was an orchestra composed of young women some of whom were quite pleasing in both looks and manners the longer we remained at this gambling-house the less money we had to spend in the shops i went ashore with the determination not to buy anything as i was very anxious not to increase my baggage i withstood the tempting laces which were offered at wonderfully low prices THE QUAINT EGYPTIAN CURIOS, AND MANAGED TO CONTENT MYSELF BY BUYING A SUN-HAT, AS EVERYBODY ELSE DID, AND A PEGGERY TO WIND ABOUT IT AS IS CUSTOMARY IN THE EAST. HAVING BOUGHT A HAT AND SEEN ALL I CARED TO OF THE SHOPS, I WENT strolling ABOUT WITH SOME FRIENDS, FEASTING MY EYES ON WHAT WERE TO ME PECULIARITIES OF A PECULIAR PEOPLE. I saw old houses with carved wood fronts that would have been worth a fortune in America occupied by tenants that were unmistakably poor. The natives were apparently so accustomed to strangers that we attracted very little, if any, attention, except from those who hoped to gain something from our visit. Unmolested, we went about, finding no occasion to use sticks on the natives. We saw a great number of beggars who, true to their trade, whined forth with outstretched hands their plaintive appeals— but they were not so intrusive or bothersome that they necessitated our giving them the cane instead of alms. The majority of these beggars presented such repulsive forms of misery that, in place of appealing to my sympathetic nature, as is generally the case, they had a hardening effect on me. They seemed to thrust their deformities in our faces in order to compel us to give money to buy their absence from our sight." While standing looking after a train of camels that had just come in loaded with firewood, I saw some Egyptian women. They were small in stature, and shapelessly clad in black. Over their faces, beginning just below the eyes, they wore black veils that fell almost to their knees. As if fearing that veil alone would not destroy all semblance of features, they wear a thing that spans the face between the hair and the veil down the line of their noses. In some cases this appears to be of gold, and in others it is composed of some black material. One Egyptian woman carried a little naked baby with her. She held it on her hips, its little black legs clinging to her waist much after the fashion of a boy climbing a pole. Down at the beach we came upon a group of naked men clustered about an alligator that they had caught. It was securely fastened in some knotted rope, the end of which was held by some half-dozen black fellows. The public water-carriers, with well-filled goatskins flung across their backs, we met making their way to the town for the last trip that day. Darkness came on us very suddenly, and sent us rushing off for our ship. This time we found the boatmen would not permit us to even enter their boats until we paid them to take us across to the Victoria. Their price now was just double what they had charged to bring us to land. We protested. "'but they said it was the law to double the price after sunset. "'They were just finishing the coaling when we reached the ship, "'but the sight we caught of the coal barges, "'lighted by some sputtering, dripping stuff, "'held in iron cages on the end of long poles, "'that showed the hurrying naked people rushing with sacks of coal "'up a steep gangplank between the barges and the ship, "'was one long to be remembered. "'Nor were they working quietly.' "'Judging from the noise, every one of them was yelling something "'that pleased his own fancy and humour. "'The next morning I got up earlier than usual, "'so anxious was I to see the famous Suez Canal. "'Rushing up on deck, I saw we were passing through "'what looked like an enormous ditch, "'enclosed on either side with high sand-banks. "'We seemed to be hardly moving, "'which made us feel the heat very intensely. "'They tell me that, according to law, a ship must not travel through the canal at a speed exceeding five knots an hour, because the rapid passage of the ship would make a strong current that would wash in the sandbanks. One gentleman, who had travelled all his life, helped us to pass some of the tedious stifling hours in the canal by telling us the history of it. It was begun in 1859 and took ten years to build. The work is estimated to have cost nearly 18,250,000 pounds, although the poor blacks that were employed to do the labor commanded the lowest possible wages. It is claimed that the lives of 100,000 laborers were sacrificed in the building of this canal, which is only 100 English miles, 88 geographical miles, 5 in length. When first completed, the width of the surface of the canal was 325 feet, but the constant washing in of the banks has reduced it to one hundred and ninety-five feet. The bottom is said to be seventy-two feet wide, and the depth is but twenty-six feet. The trip through the canal can be made in from twenty to twenty-four hours. About noon of our first day in the canal, we anchored in the bay fronting Ismailia. Here passengers were taken on, which gave us time to see the Khedive's palace which is built a little way back from the beach in the heart of a beautiful green forest. Continuing the journey through the canal, we saw little of interest. The signal stations were the only green spots that met the eye, but they were proof of what could be done, even in this sandy desert, by the expenditure of time and energy. The one thing that enlivened this trip was the appearance of naked Arabs, who would occasionally run along the banks of the canal, crying in pitiful tones, Bak-shish. this we understood meant money which many of the kind-hearted passengers would throw to them but the beggars never seemed to find it and would keep on after us still crying until they were exhausted we passed several ships in the canal generally the passengers would call to the passengers on the other ships but the conversation was confined mainly to inquiries as to what kind of voyage had been theirs We saw at one place in the canal a lot of Arabs, both men and women, at work. Among them were a number of camels that were employed in carrying stone, with which the labourers were endeavouring to strengthen the banks. In the night the boat hung an electric light from the front, and by the aid of this light, moving it from side to side, were able to continue on their way. Before the introduction of the electric headlights for this purpose, the vessels were always compelled to tie up in the canal overnight, because of the great danger of running into the sandbanks. In addition to making the trip longer, this stoppage added greatly to the discomfort of the passengers, who found that even the slow motion of the boat helped in a measure to lessen the stifling heat that seemed to come from out of the sandbanks during the night as well as when the blazing sun was in the cloudless sky. We saw, when near the end of the canal, several Arab encampments. They were both picturesque and interesting. First we could notice a small dull red fire, and between that fire and us we could see the outlines of people and resting camels. At one encampment we heard music, but at the others we saw people either working over the fire, as if preparing their evening meal, or in sitting positions, crouching about it in company with their camels." Shortly after this, we dropped anchor in the bay of Suez. Hardly had we done so when the ship was surrounded by a number of small sailboats that, in the semi-darkness, with their white sails before the breeze, reminded me of moths flocking to a light, both from their white winged-like appearance, and the rapid way in which numbers of them floated down on us. These sailboats were filled with men with native fruits, photographs, and odd shells to sell. They all came on board— and among them were a number of jugglers. The passengers took very little interest in the vendors, but all had a desire to see what was to be offered by the jugglers. There was one among them, a black man, who wore little else than a sash, a turban and a baggy pocket, in the lining of which he carried two lizards and a small rabbit. He was very anxious to show us his tricks and to get the money for them. He refused, however, to do anything with the rabbit and lizards until after he had shown us what he could do with the handkerchief and some bangles that he brought along for this purpose. He selected me from among the crowd to hold the handkerchief, which he had first shaken as if to show that it contained nothing. He then showed us a small brass bangle, and pretended to put the bangle in the handkerchief. He then placed the handkerchief in my hand, telling me to hold it tightly. I did so, feeling the presence of the bangle very plainly. He blew on it, and, jerking the handkerchief loose from my grasp, shook it. Much to the amazement of the crowd, the bangle was gone. Some of the passengers, in the meantime, stole the juggler's rabbit, and one of the lizards had quietly taken itself off to some secluded spot. He was very much concerned about the loss of them, and refused to perform any more tricks until they were restored to his keeping. At last one young man took the rabbit from his pocket, and returned it to the juggler, much to his gratification. "'The lizard was not to be found, and as it was time for the ship to sail, the juggler "'was forced to return to his boat. "'After he had gone, several people came to know if I had any idea how the trick with "'the handkerchief had been done. "'I explained to them that it was an old and very uninteresting trick, that the man "'had one bangle sewn in the handkerchief, and the other bangle, which he showed to the "'people, he slipped quietly out of sight.' Of course, the one who held the handkerchief held the bangle, but when the juggler would jerk the handkerchief from the hand and shake it in full view of the audience, the bangle being sewn to the handkerchief would naturally not fall to the floor. And as he carefully kept the side to which the bangle was attached turned towards himself, he successfully duped his audience into thinking that by his magic he had made the bangle disappear. One of the men who listened to this explanation became very indignant and wanted to know if i knew positively how this trick had been done and why i had not exposed the man i merely explained that i wanted to see the juggler get his money much to the disgust of the englishman where we were anchored at suez some claim is the historic place where the israelites crossed the red sea Some people who bothered themselves greatly about facts, figures, and ancient history bought views, which showed that at certain stages of the tide, people even in this day can wade around there without any risk of life or comfort. The next morning, when we arose, we were out of sight of land and well out on the Red Sea. The weather now was very hot, but still some of the passengers did their best to make things lively on board. One evening a number of young men gave a minstrel show. They displayed both energy and perseverance in preparing for it, as well as in the execution of it. One end of the deck was set aside for the show. A stage was put up, and the whole corner was enclosed by awnings, and the customary green curtain hung in place during service, as drop-curtain between acts, as well as appearing before and after the performance. The young men filled their different roles in a very commendable manner, but as the night was so dreadfully warm the passengers feeling the heat more than usual, owing to the deck being enclosed by awnings, it was difficult to awake any enthusiasm on the part of the audience. We had an intermission, when all retired to the dining-room for punch and biscuits, and I know that no one appreciated the refreshments more than the actors who joined us, their blackened faces streaked with perspiration. Towards the last the passengers could find very little to do that proved interesting, or in any way aided them to forget the heat. A few of those who could sing, or imagined they could, were persuaded to exercise their vocal organs for the benefit of those who could sing and would not, and those who realized they had no voice, and knew enough to remain quiet. At other times, many of us went to the deck reserved for the second-class passengers, and enjoyed the concerts given by them. When there were no chairs for us on this deck, we would sit on the floor, and we all acknowledged that the first-class passengers could not furnish music that was any better." The days were spent mainly on deck, lounging about in easy-chairs. I found that no one enjoyed as much comfort as I did. I had changed my heavy waist for my silk bodice, and I felt cool and comfortable and lazily happy. When dinner-hour approached, we could see a few rush off to dress for dinner, and later they would appear in full dress, low bodice, and long train, much to the amusement of that class of passengers who maintained that it was decidedly not the thing to appear in full dress on an ocean steamer the evening dress made of white linen in which the young men in the east generally made their appearance at dinner impressed me as being not only comfortable and appropriate but decidedly becoming and elegant it is very seldom that men do not get more enjoyment out of life than women under like circumstances between cricket to which they were passionately attached, and quats in the smoking-room, which was the scene of many exciting games for large stakes, and, later on, an hour or so spent in a dark corner of the deck pleasing, and being pleased by some congenial companion of the opposite sex, the enforced rest was quite an agreeable one to the men. We were all very much interested and concerned about a small bird that had travelled with us from Suez, sometimes flying along a little way and then resting on the rigging of the ship. It was a pretty bird, with a slender gray tail, and a silver breast, and a black ring about its throat, its back being a modest, drabbish brown. At first it was easily frightened, but after a while it became very tame, and it would light on the deck among the passengers, picking up the crumbs they threw to it. Beside the bird, as a topic of interest, we had the lizard, which was left behind by the juggler. It was found in a quiet corner of the deck by the quartermaster the morning following our stop at Suez. A sympathizing young man took charge of it and endeavored to feed it, but after living in sullen quietness for a few days, it ceased to breathe and its death was solemnly announced to the passengers. The Victoria is said to be the finest boat on the p and o line, still, it could not be more unsuited for the trip. It is very badly planned being built so that a great number of cabins inside are absolutely cut off from light and air. It is a compliment to call them cabins, as they are really nothing more than small, dark, disagreeable, and unventilated boxes. The passengers are charged all the same rate of fare, and if they are consigned to one of these undesirable boxes there is no redress. They must simply bow before the dictates of this company, who trade on the fact of there being an old established line— and a very desirable one in many respects, and passengers are treated, I judge only by what I saw and heard, as if they should consider that a favour had been conferred upon them when they were permitted to pay for tickets to travel on that line. The prices to ports that are touched at by rival steamship lines are rather reasonable, while to ports where they have the monopoly they charge exorbitant rates. I have stated that the conduct of the officers and servants, and the quality of the food— left much to be desired by the travellers. The nights were so warm while on the Red Sea that the men left their cabins and spent their nights on deck. It is usually customary for the women to sleep on deck, one side of which at such times is reserved exclusively for them. During this trip none of the women had the courage to set the example, so the men had the decks to themselves. SLEEPING DOWN BELOW WAS ALL THE MORE REASON WHY WOMEN ARISING EARLY WOULD GO OUT ON THE DECKS BEFORE THE SUN BEGAN TO BOIL, IN SEARCH OF A REFRESHING SPOT WHERE THEY COULD GET A BREATH OF COOL AIR. AT THIS HOUR THE MEN WERE USUALLY TO BE SEEN PROMENADING ABOUT IN THEIR PAJAMAS, BUT I HEARD NO OBJECTIONS RAISED UNTIL, MUCH TO THE DISMAY OF THE WOMEN, THE CAPTAIN ANNOUNCED THAT THE DECKS BELONGED TO THE MEN UNTIL AFTER EIGHT O'CLOCK IN THE MORNING, AND THAT THE WOMEN WERE EXPECTED TO REMAIN BELOW UNTIL AFTER THAT HOUR. Just before we came to Aden, we passed in the sea a number of high, brown mountains. They are known as the Twelve Apostles. Shortly after this, we came in sight of Aden. It looked to us like a large, bare mountain of wonderful height, but even by the aid of glasses we were unable to tell that it was inhabited. Shortly after eleven o'clock in the morning, we anchored in the bay, Our boat was soon surrounded by a number of small boats, which brought to us men who had things to sell, and the wonderful divers of the East. The passengers had been warned by the officers on board not to go ashore at Aden, because of the intense heat. So the women spent their time bargaining with the Jews who came to the ship to sell ostrich feathers and feather boas. The men helped them to close with the sellers, always to the sellers' advantage, much as they might congratulate themselves to the contrary. I, in company with a few of the more reckless ones, decided to brave the heat and go ashore and see what Auden had to offer. End of chapter 7